Turn in your Bible with me to Obadiah. It's uh, one that you may need the table of contents to track down because it's a short little guy that's easy to pass over. And Rick, thanks for the reminder that Sunday is the first day of the week, right? Don't we typically think Monday is the first day of the week, which is why everybody hates Monday. But Sunday is the first day of the week because we give God our first fruits, right? And more than that, we give Him everything. Uh, We give Him the best. And so... Um, Thank you for that reminder. I'm actually going to read all of Obadiah in lieu of uh, our scripture reading today. It's a short one, and so let's read through this together. It says, The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding." Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall come over you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates, And cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau a stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, 
and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in the Shepherd shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let me pray for us. God, we do pray that you would pour out your spirit, that you would speak through your word, that you would minister to our hearts, that you would enable us in obedience, that you would encourage us with joy, that you would unite us with one heart before you. Father, just bless this time that we bring before you in Christ's name. Amen. Man, even just reading that, I'm I, I wish that I was preaching on Obadiah again next week. I realize even as I'm reading it, as short as this is, like there's so much in here that I'm not even going to cover. But as we press on in this series of the neglected prophets, the minor prophets, we've come to this quick little stop, the book of Obadiah. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. And we know nothing about the prophet Obadiah except that his name means Yah, or worshiper of Yahweh pretty common name in ancient Israel. As for the time frame when it was written, just some historical context here, uh, Bible scholars are pretty much divided on whether it was a book written around 800 BC or a vision given to Obadiah after Babylon destroyed Judah and Jerusalem around 586 BC. For our purposes, it doesn't really change anything either way. The reason I mention the dates is because Obadiah is a prophecy against Edom, the nation of Edom, not Israel. Edom was a nation, if you were to flip to your Bible map in the back, that was southeast of Judah, uh, more or less across the Dead Sea. But the date is somewhat somewhat significant because the prophecy of Obadiah foretells the utter destruction of the nation of Edom. And we assume that this happened around the time of Jesus uh, because Edom suddenly disappears from the historical record under the Roman Empire, the Roman conquest. And here's why I go into this. The point is this. God patiently waited many hundreds of years enduring the sin of Edom before he brought this judgment and this destruction that Obadiah speaks of. At least 600 years if you go with the early date for Obadiah. I guess I should say the late date for Obadiah. So the destruction of Edom and the prophecy of Obadiah brings us to this recurring theme that we're going to see throughout the Minor Prophets. We've already seen it a bit. That God is filled with wrath over the sin of man, but he is patient with people beyond human comprehension. God is not like me. The first time my kids spill milk, I get angry. I yell at them. I take the milk away. No, it's like God watches his children spill the milk 10,000 times in a row, over and over and over again, before he finally gets angry and takes the milk away. The Minor Prophets, they're books that focus on God's wrath towards sin, but we also have to acknowledge that the minor prophets are books that focus on the long-suffering nature of our God, the patience of our God, who again and again offers steadfast love and faithfulness and kindness 
to those who will turn to him. God brings disaster on the hard-hearted, but he graciously relents of disaster on the repentant. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Just a little more on Edom so you can kind of understand what's going on in Obadiah. Edom was, again, a pagan nation, not part of Israel. Uh, They appear regularly in the storyline of Israel, in the history of Israel. Probably you notice the name Esau come up going way back. Edom is actually the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. Uh, Esau was the son of Isaac. At the beginning of this story of God's redemptive purposes in Genesis with Abraham and uh, the biblical fathers. But if you remember the story, Esau was a fool and he sold his birthright to his younger brother for a bowl of stew. And God rejected Esau. And so from Esau comes the nation of Edom, very distant cousins with the nation of Israel. And the land that they lived in was this very mountainous region with lots of natural cave formations, which is why uh, the, or the Edomites used them for their dwellings, which is why you see in verse 3 that mentioned. Edom was a wealthy nation. They had trade partnerships. They were also into looting other nations whenever the opportunity presented itself, and they had mineral deposits of iron and copper. Their valleys were fertile because they had advances in uh, agriculture and irrigation. And they were relatively safe from invading enemies because they had the high ground in their mountain homes against enemies that might come against them. Now, all of this is important because Edom receives two major rebukes from God. A rebuke of their attitude and a rebuke of their actions. The rebuke of the attitude comes in verse 3. See if you can catch it while I reread verses 2 through 4. God says, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, From there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Did you catch it there? Verse 3 tells us Edom has become deceived by the pride, by their pride from their prosperity and their security. They've placed their hopes in the wrong things. And I would say, actually, Edom presents us with a type, which often happens in the Old Testament. Here we find a type of arrogant defiance against God. And it serves as a warning for us. I think there's even a little pun here in the Hebrew to, to emphasize it because the Hebrew word, try and bear with me here. I know this is, this is uh, tricky, but it, I think it's funny. The Hebrew word pride and the Hebrew word stew have the same root, zed, meaning to boil or to be insolent. And so God actually condemns the people of Edom because they're just like their forefather Esau who in pride, in insolence, took the boiling stew over his birthright like a fool. He showed an arrogant lack of respect for God and God's ways. And Edom, too, despises and scorns the things of God. They've 
They've, they have a general hatred for the kingdom of God, which is why they hate the Israelites and mock them and abuse them. And this hatred for God leads them to trust in their own power instead of the power of God, their own sufficiency instead of His provision. And they're proud, and they stand against God and His people. And that attitude ultimately leads to their destruction. But it's not their attitude alone that invokes God's wrath, as is so often the case. The corruption in our hearts manifests itself in action. Sinful attitudes inevitably work themselves out in our behavior. I would go so far as to say the behavior of people is never contrary to the attitudes of their heart. It is always consistent with what is in their heart. And so it's no surprise that Edom's pride leads them to sin against God and against God's people. Look at verses 10 through 14. Let me read it again. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Obadiah is talking about when Israel was destroyed by Babylon. And how did Edom respond? Well, verse 12, Do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Don't rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of his distress. It's kind of repetitive, isn't it? Here, the sinful attitude of pride finds its outward expression in actions like violence, gloating, boasting, looting, instead of helping and assisting those who are fleeing their enemies Edom actually jumps in and abuses the desperate. And as I already said, God opposes the proud, even as he gives grace to the humble. And so it's no wonder then that God's wrath is poured out on Edom. Pride has corrupted their hearts so that their attitudes and their actions now both are utterly opposed, defiant to God and his law and his people. And it's for that opposition that God ultimately brings them down to the ground and grinds them into the dust so that they are wiped from the face of the earth. And this is what Obadiah prophesies over the nation of Edom. There shall, look at verse 18. There shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. And roughly 600 years later then, Obadiah's prophecy comes true, the word of God is proven true, and the Romans destroy Edom from the earth. So let's explore some of the major themes of Obadiah a little more deeply. We already touched on it. The first one I just want to make you aware of, again, is the danger of pride and arrogance in verse 3. I don't think it's an overstatement to say this, that the one condition of the human heart which God will not work with, is pride. 
I mean, he works our pride for his purposes and for his glory. Don't misunderstand. What I'm saying is a heart that is so proud that it will not bend to the will of God will inevitably be broken by the will of God, like Edom. And again, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that pride is the one thing that only evokes God's wrath and not his mercy. Pride is the one sin that I would say in the end is ultimately irredeemable, which I think is why Edom ends the way it does. Think about it through the lens of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus forgives prostitutes like Mary. He loves on fraudsters like Zacchaeus. He's gracious and ministers to Roman military oppressors. He has compassion on a Samaritan woman. He forgives a criminal on the cross. He welcomes back the disciples who abandon him and ultimately leave him alone. He accepts a religious fool like Nicodemus. In his parables, the wayward, sinful, prodigal son is welcomed home again by the loving father when the son should be banished. Even after all of his godless behavior, the father loves him. And all of these people, they're accepted and they're loved by Jesus. But in contrast, the rich young ruler who claims that he's kept all of the law since his birth, proud beyond belief in that claim, goes away from Jesus sad because his pride makes him blind to his true need. In the parables that Jesus taught, the Pharisee who arrogantly believes as he's before the altar of God that he's better than this man weeping because he's not a sinner like him, it's the Pharisee who's condemned while the weeping man is accepted. The older brother in the parable of the prodigal sin, he's our obvious example of the condescending self-righteousness. The man who's forgiven a great debt, you know that story. His master forgives him of all of his debts only so that the servant can go out of the presence of the master to beat up a fellow servant for a few measly dollars in his pride failing to understand all that he's been forgiven. And probably most often of all, the Pharisees, those hypocrites who receive all of the woes of Jesus, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, because in their arrogance they cannot see the corruption of sin in their own hearts. And all of these prideful people are shown by Jesus to be irredeemable. Because they refuse to acknowledge that they are not actually the righteous people that they think they are. They have deceived themselves into believing that they already have redemption and they have no need of Jesus. These people didn't need help and because they don't need help, they don't get any help from Christ. They believed they had nothing to repent of so they received no forgiveness. And like Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Bringing it back to Obadiah, my point is that we can read this prophecy and we can think, man, God, I'm, thank you that I'm not a sinner like Edom. Thank you that I'm not prideful like Edom. 
Or we can read this short little book and realize how desperately we need the grace of God in our own lives. There are no people who are well. If you are here and you think that you are well, you are deceived. There are only sick people in need of a Savior. In our attitudes, in our actions, they're laced with sin. They are desperately in need of forgiveness. Our hearts are in a constant war of pride, and the only remedy is to see ourselves rightly as broken people who need a gracious God to save us. I can look at the cross and I can think about how wonderful it was for Jesus to die for so many other people. Or I can look at the cross and see Christ crucified and realize in humility that it was my sin who put him there. In short, pride drives us away from God because it leads us to believe we don't need him. And humility drives us to the feet of Jesus because we realize we cannot live without him. And this pride inevitably leads to the second theme and the second condemnation for Edom. They failed to love their brother. Verse 10. We already read verses 10 through 14 twice, so I won't read it again. But if you look there, you see that the attitude of arrogance makes Edom feel justified in their actions. Um, I have uh, four kids. I'm a parent. I have to deal with this idea uh, on a daily basis. It happened twice this week on two consecutive days. One of my children punched another one of my children. And when I asked them why they did it, they said because they were annoying me. It was obvious. Dad, it was a justified punch. They were annoying me. They thought their violence was justified because their sibling was annoying. And I love my children desperately, but I can tell you when, when that comes up, I just have to laugh when they abuse each other for the sin of being annoying because I love my children, but they are all annoying. <laughs> but of course, we are all sharply attuned to the sin in others that we so casually accept in ourselves, aren't we? In pride, we think we're better than other people. And our pride actually goes beyond that because in our pride, we actually think other people think we're as great as we think we are. And that pride leads us to justify the abuse that we bring upon our brothers and our sisters, our neighbors, our enemies. And as much as God loves each one of us, like I desperately love my children if we can continue that illustration, the truth is, we are all sinners with absolutely no justification whatsoever to abuse one another in the presence of our perfect heavenly Father. The best part of the story that I just told is the very next day, my same kid who got in trouble the day before went and kicked another sibling. And when I asked them, why did you do this? They told me again, because they were annoying me. Clearly, my discipline from the day before had not penetrated their hearts because nothing changed from one day to the next. Which is why we all need to hear this again and again and again. We can laugh at the behavior of a nine-year-old, 
But are we really all that different? The gospel message is that each and every one of us is a wretch before a holy God. But that holy God loves us still. Both of those are true at exactly the same time. You and I, we are a wretch. God loves us still. And once we understand our wretchedness and God's love for us, then we begin to grow in our understanding that before this holy God, we are all on equal footing. We are better than nobody else. Our obligation is to love others because we've been so graciously and wonderfully loved by God. We are in no position to abuse others because God, who has every right to justly abuse us for our sins, instead offers us love and grace and forgiveness. We're in no position to be proud. Because everything that we have and everything that we are has come to us through the kindness of God. I say this a lot, but I'll say it again. We don't love others because they deserve our love. We love others because God loved us when we were undeserving. And so Edom is judged because of their gloating, their boasting, their rejoicing over the ruin of their neighbor Israel And that same judgment will fall on all who fail to see that God's love compels us to love others. And this takes us to our third theme, judgment and the day of the Lord. Obadiah reminds us that if in our pride, God's love for us does not penetrate our hearts and soften our hearts to love others, then the only thing that's left for us is God's just judgment. Look at verse 15. It says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. It's true as Christians that we are saved by grace and grace alone. But grace does not nullify good works. Good works do not save us. But good works are the right and necessary fruit of such an overwhelming gift of grace. How could you receive such grace and not respond with Loving obedience, good fruit. Like Dallas Willard so wonderfully said, grace is opposed to earning, but grace is not opposed to effort. Obadiah records the words of the Lord and says, As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Like a foolish young boy, right, still learning the nuances of gravity, taking the baseball, tossing it up into the air, watching it while he stands and it falls in his face. So too, our pride producing the fruit of evil will come back to haunt us if we don't repent of our sin and change our ways. And Jesus himself says essentially the same thing of Obadiah right here. In Matthew 7, he says, For with the judgment you pronounce, 
you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. If grace and forgiveness and love are given, then those will be the merits by which we ourselves are judged and will escape judgment unscathed because of Christ's atoning grace and forgiveness and love. But if we fail to see all that God has done for us and in pride we judge others through the lens of perfection and unforgiveness and hatred, then we will be condemned by our own sinful actions. Now, there's a fascinating verse in 1 Corinthians 6-2 that says that the saints of God will judge the world. Did you know that you have that responsibility? That you as a saint of God will judge the world. But your qualification to participate in that judgment is given to you only by the grace of God. You have no right in yourself to sit in that seat of judgment. And the grace that has been given to you, will it make you humble enough to sit in that seat of judgment? Will you first subject yourself to the scrutiny in your own heart, analyzing the log in your own eye before you take that seat in judgment? In other words, by God's grace, when we judge, the judgment we bring upon the world, it will be God's perfect judgment. But we will realize we have only escaped it by the overwhelming grace of God. We have contributed nothing on our own. And so we do judge people, not according to our arbitrary standards, which we can't even live up to ourselves, but we judge people according to the perfect standard of God. And we judge in humility. We lay aside our pride to recognize we only escape judgment ourselves because God has been kind to us. In our humility, we will escape judgment because the fear of judgment for our sins drives us to appeal to the loving grace of God by acknowledging we cannot stand under this judgment through our own merits. And now, this brings us to an important little rabbit trail I want to follow before I close out with a reflection on the gospel. There's an effort within so-called Christianity today to scrub the Bible and our religion of any concept of judgment. Too often it's claimed that judgment and love are, are opposites. They sit on opposite ends of a spectrum. And we must choose either judgment or love in our Christian faith. But that's not at all what the Bible teaches. Consider a few verses just from Psalm 136, and I could have found so many other ones, but... In Psalm 136, God's wrath and judgment are smashed together with his steadfast love. It says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. It says, give thanks to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to him who struck down great kings 
for his steadfast love endures forever. Who killed mighty kings for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. In the same sentence, this psalm says, Give thanks to God because He killed mighty kings. His steadfast love endures forever. God in His love destroys the proud, and in His love God lifts up the humble. This psalm helps us to understand that God's love and His judgment, they are not two opposing forces within the nature of God. They are not like two different colored sands in a jar that are distinct. They're like two different colored sands in a jar that have been mixed so thoroughly you could never pick apart the different colored grains. They are indistinguishable. The way that we say it is, they're two sides of the same coin. God loves His holiness And so he judges Edom. God loves justice and righteousness. So he judges Edom. God loves humility and mercy. So he judges Edom. Isaiah in a prophecy says, Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. And all I can say here is that this is a great mystery about our God. It's an aspect of his nature that I cannot comprehend because I'm not like him in this way. And yet we must accept it as true because he's revealed it to us. God is loving in his judgment and he judges in love. And in fact, I, I really... I know that this is the part in this sermon where like, you know, 27 minutes you're, you're fading, but I really want to try and penetrate your heart with this concept. In fact, the more we undermine the judgment of God, the more we destroy the beauty of His love. Please think about this. If we are wretched and God loves us, that is astounding If we are lovable and God loves us, that's expected. And the more we attack the judgment of God, the more we repudiate the cross where Christ is shown to pour out His love for sinners. The more we claim that God is not a God of judgment, the more we actually reveal our own pride because we think we don't need to be judged. We undermine our need for grace by claiming that we're not actually condemned. We're not that bad. Jesus didn't need to go that far. And the great irony about shrugging off the judgment of God is that we don't need to shrug it off. Why? Because God has made provision for His judgment already. Instead of trying to erase it, Let's just go to Jesus who's already paid for it. Provision has been made for us to escape judgment and not end up like Edom. The provision is Christ. 
the greater and more serious and more weighty the judgment of God for our sin, the more beautiful and wonderful and awesome is the cross where God took all that upon himself. And this is one of the beauties of the minor prophets. They speak a lot about judgment so that by the time we get to the cross, we realize how desperately we need this grace. How severe the judgment of God is and how beautiful the redemption of the cross is. And we need to do nothing more than simply acknowledge that we need Him. And that acknowledgement, that need, sets us free from God's judgment against our pride. But if, as I said, we reject God's love for us, as it's been displayed to us on the cross, His love then becomes the measure by which we are judged. And there is nothing for us outside of His love but condemnation. And here we find our final reflection from Obadiah. I used to say that the kingdom of God is upside down, but I've realized that's foolishness. The kingdom of man is upside down, and the kingdom of God is right side up. See, Edom was lofty among the nations of man, which is precisely why God cast it down. And in the kingdom of God, the powerful are defeated, while the powerless are made kings and queens. In the kingdom of God, the humble are exalted the way that it should be, and the proud are crushed the way that it should be. In the kingdom of God, it's the refugees who inherit the land, and those who sought to keep them out, they are made homeless and cast out. In the kingdom of God, the exiles are brought home, and the rebels are dispelled. In the kingdom of God, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they are the ones who are satisfied, while those who are bloated with pride from their self-righteousness are revealed to be emaciated and malnourished. In the kingdom of God, the violent are overthrown and the peacemakers are crowned kings. And all of this takes place because God himself is humble All of this takes place because God himself became an exile in his own creation. All of this takes place because in the death of Christ, God has given us life. Let me try and say it with words far better than my own, and I hope they're as meaningful to you as they were to me. From an old English pastor, he says, The strife is ended. Not that ancient strife only between the evil and the good, the oppressor and the oppressed, the subduer and the subdued, but the whole strife and disobedience of the creature towards the Creator, man against his God. Blessed, peaceful kingdom, even here in this valley of tears and of strife where God rules the soul, freeing it from the tyranny of the world and Satan and its own passions, inspiring it to know himself, the highest truth, and to love him who is love, and to adore him who is infinite majesty. This is what God has done for us. Not only winning the battle of evil against good, but being victorious over the rebellion of the creature against the creator. 
the kingdom of earth that God made for himself and his glory that man has attempted to steal from him. Obadiah now tells us in his final words, the kingdom of creation that God made for himself once again has become the kingdom of God. Like Obadiah says at the end, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. 